As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. The race is on, and just like that, pre-season testing is all over, with Sergio Perez setting the pace for Red Bull, Ferrari looking close, Mercedes staging a mini-recovery on the last day, and Aston Martin looking punchy. But with testing timesheets notoriously fickle, what conclusions can we really draw from the three days of running in Bahrain? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to reveal all is Scott mitchell Mound. Well, Scott, three days, back on the sofa, the latest one we've had, well past midnight now, but we've learned all we're going to learn pre-season and we think we've kind of got a reasonable idea of where things might be. Yeah, it's not the... It hasn't been the most complex picture to put together because obviously with the stable regulations, there was quite a clear pecking order last year and there were one or two teams that had obvious areas to improve over the winter. But that said, I mean, there are a couple of surprises in... The pecking order, one stands out as a good surprise, one stands out as a bad surprise as far as those teams go. So, yeah, we've um, we've picked through quite a lot of data, both in the 
you know, in, in timing sheet form and also just visual data, what we've seen trackside and spoken to a lot of people and heard from a lot of people this week as well. So it's been fun, in, in intense. The um, the three-day sort of single test is is a bit of a whirlwind, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And it's also quite difficult when it's a track like Bahrain, where they run in the heat of the day and under the lights. The conditions change a lot. There can be quite a bit of wind here that changes things. Obviously, particularly day one and a bit on day two, there was a reasonable amount of breeze about. Today was a little bit calmer. So there's extra variables that confound it beyond the usual tyre, run plan, etc., etc. So very interesting. I think it's probably one of the most straightforward pecking orders to draw from pre-season testing that we've had for a while. I must admit, even last year wasn't too bad um, from that regard. But I guess that continuity we've got, there's no reason to expect certain teams to make gargantuan leaps forward or get things spectacularly wrong because this is a very much a, a follow-on from last year. But there's also within that plenty of scope for little shuffles. It's more that we've got sort of a, an idea of where the groupings are, but we're going to have to get to, well, we don't have to get to Bahrain. We're already here. We're going to have to get to next weekend before we get the real confirmation. Yeah, I I agree with you that it is a bit more straightforward, but that those groupings, that, that there is there is enough, there are enough teams that are close together for things like the caveats of testing fuel loads and engine modes mainly to swing it. Um, even right at the very front with with Red Bull and, and Ferrari, I don't, I don't think the Ferrari is on the Red Bull pace, for example. But it looks closer on one lap than it is over a race stint. And if Ferrari is running an extra ten kilos of fuel actually suddenly maybe they look really quite close and that's the thing you're trying to you're trying to factor in what you're seeing what you're hearing what the most accurate parts of the data like the longest of the long runs tell you because that eliminates one of the variables of fuel because they all have to have a certain amount of fuel in the car to be able to do that many laps and you're just trying to work out right okay how much do i apply sort of a bit of caution here how much do I read into this and one of the things I find with um, going trackside for example I don't know if this is the same for you but I sometimes find myself second guessing what I've seen in a sense of oh well you know I'm only seeing a snapshot so I probably shouldn't read too much into this oh but maybe I'm actually being a bit too cautious and not trusting what I say because I don't want to get carried away and maybe I should believe what I see and you can you can very easily start second guessing yourself in in testing this there is so much uncertainty yet at the same time so many data streams that you can get lost quite easily well you're always compensating for variables aren't you for example I was watching towards the end of the day and Perez was out on performance runs and the Ferrari was on a on a medium tire, I think, at that point, and obviously looked a little bit more sedate. But you're trying to create in your mind a little tire offset and a program race run versus performance run, and that's why I do think that the body language of the cars across a range of trackside observations is is the most valuable. But of course, it's taken time because we've got the added complication that when it comes to these cars, they're doing a lot of what you might call deliberate setup 
errors effectively in that they're trying to find where the porpoising may kick in because although porpoising isn't the problem it was last year the laws of physics remain unchanged so it's still something you can hit but the teams need to know what the envelope is and make sure they have a good idea of how they can induce it avoid it where it kicks in and that's why most drivers and teams have been saying hey, it's not a problem but occasionally you will see footage i'm sure people have seen it online or from watching the coverage of cars jumping the alfa romeo at one stage today was porpoising a reasonable amount but these are the extra confounding factors but once you get to the last day of testing they've done a lot of that work so it's a little bit more not predictable but a little that there's a, a set range of things you know they're going to be doing on the last day as they make progress so positive from from that perspective yeah absolutely if you're uh, you sound fairly confident so what will be the first two rows of the grid in qualifying next week <laughs> there we go well that's the challenge i would at the moment go for red bull and ferrari and the main confounding question there is is how close other cars are which could get into it and who to stop so it's very very difficult but you do have a a sort of baseline for for what you expect to happen and the reason this is useful is this is the best data we've got so far it's not very good in terms of what we will get later in the year compared it's to what will happen complete isn't it very yeah. incomplete it's very provisional very tentative all the caveats that are there but also what's also what's useful is the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend will play out and then we'll be able to start cross-referencing what actually happened versus what happened in testing. And then it becomes a question of, okay, right, you can find out because teams will be a little bit more forthcoming on stuff. And you might find out, oh, actually, there was a fuel load thing going on there. Or you might find, actually, no, that was what the situation was. But this upgrade was introduced or we worked out that this was happening in the test. And that's what allows you to drill down and try and understand the mechanisms and it tends to get reduced to if things massively change between testing and the race that someone was sandbagging or whatever and yeah the, the leading teams don't go out in full-on qualifying trim they just don't do that but if some teams are like deliberately holding back their performance levels we can see that but we factor that into our conclusions when we can see it as clearly as you can with alpine for example yeah and it's not and they're not doing it purely just to sandbag it's about the wider programs and what they're doing etc and why they're doing it so the priority is always their own program but very interesting day we'll get into our pecking order very very shortly but as always mark hughes has been camped out in a darkened room ingesting every single lap time and assembling them into some sort of meaningful order so here are the results of his final day of pre-season number crunching so in the final day of testing, the competitive jigsaw began to slot into place as the teams completed their programs. And many of them, Mercedes in particular, began to better adapt to the change in balance which the new stronger front Pirelli has brought. And that did seem to be the key to the breakthrough that Mercedes in particular made on the final day. But Red Bull's dominance the whole three days has been total. And on the final day, Sergio Perez went comfortably quickest using the C4 tire. Although the C5 was theoretically faster, it tended to be overworked by the third sector and was doubt whether it really did give any overall lap time advantage over the C4. Lewis Hamilton nonetheless used a set of C5s to set the second fastest time of the test late in the day when the track was at its best, albeit around six tenths adrift of Perez's benchmark. Red Bull's closest rival in actuality was the Ferrari, which when it was doing low fuel laps at the same time as the Red Bull earlier in the day when the track was slower, seemed to be within around two tenths, something around that. In Fernando Alonso's hands, the Aston Martin looked every bit as quick as the Mercedes over a single lap and better over a race simulation. 
In fact, better tyre tag made it look at least a match for the Ferrari over a race stint, and it's going to be fascinating to see if this holds true in the race next week. Alonso's lap on the soft C4 tyre was not a good one, but on the C3 earlier in the day, he all but equaled Hamilton's best. And if the Pirelli estimate of a one second gap between C3 and C4 was accurate, then he'd have been up with or ahead of Hamilton in the overall times. The battle behind those four teams looks incredibly close, too close to call really. Valtteri Bottas got in a very quick time out of the Alfa Romeo on, on the C5 tyre. Uh, Yuki Tsunoda was quick on the C4 for Alfa Tauri at the end, as was Kevin Magnussen for Haas. But it was on the long runs that the Alpine looked better probably than any of those cars and much better than it looks over a single lap. So still a little bit of a question mark around the Alpine. We suspect we haven't seen the true um, picture of that car yet, well, um, but it, it, certainly on the long runs looks look very promising. So we can't call exactly how it will play out next week, but the, the general shape has now emerged. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the Commuter Collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The Commuter Collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Let's look at the top teams now. As Mark Hughes said, the Red Bull dominance was total. Fastest on single lap pace, fastest on long run pace. The car looked excellent on track. Now, people have heard for three days that Red Bull are looking really strong and everyone expected coming into the season that Red Bull would be really strong. So we're not going to pretend this is any great uh, revelation, but perhaps we should frame it this way. Is there any reason not to expect Red Bull to dominate next weekend in the way they have in testing? Not not really. I mean, I, I still think that there's... M- I think there's a bit more to come from the Ferrari than there is to come from the Red Bull. I, that would be my gut feeling for, from this test. I feel like we've seen more of the Red Bull's potential and that comes from a few things. That's I got the impression that Ferrari had to do a bit more setup work and experimenting to get the car into a better window. I'm not saying that Red Bull lucked into this at all, but it did feel like they got into a sweet spot with that car quite early and then did a load of setup work from that point to explore the car more. But it felt like they got to a point 
to tap into the car's performance quicker than the Ferrari did. The Ferrari was a bit hit and miss. Some changes they made that they didn't work. And then I think the way they described it was that when they got it in the right window, the performance that they felt they needed was there. But part of that is down to where their starting point was. We know the Red Bull's a very evolutionary car and they've almost continued seamlessly. We know they'll have taken some weight out of it. The weight distribution as well will be more controllable for them. And they've just made everything a little bit better. Now, Ferrari's a tiny bit different because as Charles Leclerc was saying earlier today, they've worked to perhaps trade off a little bit of the uh, of the drag so it's a little bit stronger in a straight line. And he did say that has made it a little bit harder in the corners, but that's where that re-optimization comes in. So I think that's why it's not necessarily sort of by chance that that what you observed there happened. There, there are reasons for it in terms of how Red Bull and Ferrari come into the season. The Ferrari concept's still basically the same, but they've just had a bit of a shift in terms of how they want to play the aero efficiency. Yeah, so they need to do a bit of recalibrating and that I think that'll be something that obviously you do every single weekend once you're into the season. Every team is doing it, working out that downforce drag trade-off. I think the work that Ferrari did, I had a lengthy, lengthy chat as part of a pretty small media sort of briefing with Fred Vasseur uh, this afternoon. And the impression is very much that Ferrari feel that they've had a good test, which almost belies the sort of headline times and long run numbers because they do look like they're maybe a couple of attempts shy on one lap and maybe a little bit further adrift over a race distance with a bit more tyre wear. But they just... They're talking like a team that knows it's got like a reasonable amount in reserve. And in terms of what I saw trackside, where that car ended up by the end of the third day, it looked really consistent. It looked very purposeful, I would say. It seemed strong on the brakes. It had good front end, good change of direction. But it never looked unstable at the rear so it looked all round very good it just lacked a little bit of the absolute wow punch you in the faceness of the red Bull. like when Perez came through on his what I think was a c4 lap when he set the fastest time of the test when he came past me I was at turn 10 at that point on the outside and the entry speed of that car was unlike anything I'd seen obviously all test and what I felt was really interesting was by that point I'd seen the Alfa Romeo and the Alfa Tauri come through there on basically performance runs on either the C4 or the C5. And it was noticeably different how much quicker, how much more purposeful the Red Bull was. So I never saw that from the Ferrari because that's not what they aimed for. So there's just a little bit of a gap there and it's how much of that gap Ferrari can actually catch up. Yeah, when I was watching maybe a little bit before that point you had a similar thing but you had the red bull on performance runs and the ferrari was uh, was on a race run so in a marked difference there was one of the push laps where perez did run wide out of turn 11 kicked up a bit of dirt so he wasn't quite where he wanted to be but yeah the red bull just looks good so i think that the main thing is though because you use the word dominant for red bull it's close enough to be interesting i think in that i'm not expecting red bull to absolutely obliterate Ferrari come 
the race weekend. It's close enough for me to be optimistic. I This time 12 months ago, I remember in Bahrain, we're going trackside, the Red Bull looked the best. There was a bit of an ominous feeling in the palette that the Red Bull were going to walk it. But then obviously it was Ferrari that came out on top that weekend. So I, I'm optimistic enough that we'll, we might be able to see a, a challenge next weekend. I, my underlying suspicion is that it will be Red Bull and Verstappen on top. I just hope they, I just really hope that they're made to work for it. Yeah. It looks like there's a, a, a small but real advantage there that could translate into plenty of success, but interestingly poised. In this section, I also want to talk about two other teams, Mercedes and Aston Martin. We'll get on to why Aston Martin's in this mix in a moment, but Mercedes, day one, pretty good. Day two, not very good. Lots of confusion, (laughs) lots of concern. Day three, Scott. Pretty good again, I think. Uh, it's They obviously undertook a lot of work um, overnight at the track and also uh, back at Brackley to try and understand where that lost performance had come from on day two. I feel like they got the car balance a bit better understood and improved that side of things. So it wasn't that... I don't think it was as, as simple as all oh, the conditions shifted and it took them back into a happier place or a, a window that worked. I think it was born from a genuine understanding of what the car needs and where they need to prioritise things. The drivers talked a bit more optimistically about this. The team talked a bit more optimistically about this. And it looked better, again, on track. It looked back back to being what it almost... A, a better version of what it looked like on day one, basically. Sharp front end rear braking a little bit but not too much um one thing that was telling watching the onboards especially of hamilton's fast laps in the second half of the day is that um when he was running on the c5 tire obviously that that tire is just not really suitable for this kind of this kind of track it's going to give up in the final sector but the drop-off was quite significant and part of me did wonder whether that trait of that rear just moving around and being a little bit light was punishing those tires particularly harshly because obviously anytime that you're you're sliding you're putting temperature into the tires that those tires desperately don't want to have so i feel like it was a better day for mercedes certainly but i don't see any evidence to make me want to put them higher than third in in the rankings at best and certainly as mark said on single lap pace they were third. My impression of the car, I'm a bit concerned about the overall traction. Something doesn't seem quite right there. Now, this track is quite traction dependent. It works the tyres quite hard. So that could be a tyre management kind of thing in terms of keeping the temperatures under control, particularly in a in a car that's not sort of 100% there. I think Mercedes are probably one of the teams that will be most disappointed. There's only three days of testing because it feels like, like they're on a nice trajectory. They've understood things and Andrew Shovlin did say at the end of the test that that they know what they need to focus on, but it feels like they've got a little bit more work to do. So it feels like Mercedes haven't taken a big step forward, but we know they're not battling massive porpoising problems. So it's just really about developing that car, making sure they understand it and making sure there's not some limit they're hitting with that concept that's going to mean that they can't develop it to be a race winner. Well, we know that they've got developments in the pipeline all, all the teams do but I feel like they've got some stuff coming that is hopefully going to take that car on uh, so they're they're obviously looking forward and hoping that they can chip away at it the whole point was 
that the car would eventually be in a position to fight for wins, which was that was the way that Toto Wolf put it at the car launch. But while they're going to be looking forwards, I there's a big, big feeling in the paddock at the moment that they also need to be looking backwards, at least at the start of the season. Well, that brings us on to Aston Martin. Not quite as quick over a lap, but more impressive than the Mercedes over a race run. Everyone was talking about the long run at the end of the day. And that looked like the kind of long run where there was a bit in reserve at the end, because obviously you you try and spend, for want of a better word, your tyre grip. And the car was very quick at the end of stints as well. So there's a lot of things to like about the Aston Martin. It's been blasting around all week, looking pretty good, a couple of little problems, but it seems to be consistent. It seems to be quick. It seems to be great on the one. So the real question for me is, I think we can say that the Aston Martin is the best of the midfield group, but where's the overlap with Mercedes? That's the really, really interesting question for me. Yeah, absolutely. It's that element of, have they started strongly enough that they can take advantage of Mercedes potentially being a little bit uh, vulnerable? I, I don't think that, if every team got the absolute most out of their package, I don't think the Aston is better than fourth at the moment, but I think there might be a chance of it genuinely escaping the midfield and actually starting to bridge that gap to the top three. I don't think that's impossible. It just depends on whether we've seen an accurate reflection of its potential or it's been flattered slightly because Alonso ultimately we, we, we didn't see like a headline lap time because I, I don't think Alonso got the most out of it on his softest tyre run. It yeah, was, there was definitely, yeah, Mark mentioned that, there was definitely some more in that. The Aston Martin was only the seventh fastest car on just pure unadjusted lap times. Yeah, so, so that is obviously something to factor in. You obviously... It's nice to say, oh, well, it did X on Y compound and therefore there's theoretically z much lap time available but you've still got to be able to do the lap time i'm sure that will come it was interesting hearing alonso talk about how much they missed having lance stroll around and that felt less about lip service and it's you know it's the son of the guy who's paying my salary it felt a lot more like alonso saying he was quite happy and he was obviously given as much feedback as possible. We drove the car in Abu Dhabi that last year. He was using his general experience as a super successful, experienced F1 driver. But ultimately, Lance is the one who knew the AMR 22 best. And if he'd been around, then Alonso would know whether what he is feeling is an Aston Martin thing or Alonso comparing it to other cars he's more familiar with. Yeah, I think the really positive thing is that that's a team that has definitely hit its targets, I think. It's in the place it, it needs to be, probably at the top of, of the realistic spread of where it can be. So that's very positive for Aston Martin. I'd probably put them fourth in a ranking behind Mercedes at the moment, just because almost prior probability. One, one thing to add, just on something else that stood out to me that was impressive, was I think I've mentioned this on the other couple of podcasts we've done, that it has looked consistently very strong and it's looked like Alonso can really lean on it. And it, the impression I've got speaking to a couple of people is that he is quite happy with the car. It seems to have a fairly broad working range, but I asked Mike Crack, the team principal about this at the end of today, the, the final day. And he said that that is definitely not where the car started. So he said that there has been a lot of setup work has gone into that just to refine it and get it to where it is. So 
I I think they've had a very very good winter and a very very good test. Um, if they have ultimately kept less in reserve than the others, they may well slip back when everyone takes the fuel out next week and really goes for it. But I don't see any evidence at the moment to suggest that they're playing games and that this is a, a, a false dawn, but obviously that could change. And a quick update in terms of drivers for the Grand Prix weekend. Fernando Alonso we can count on, but Lance Stroll, so we keep hearing different things from him. And now, we know he's been driving the simulator, I think, don't we? There's a suggestion, yeah, that he's in, been in the simulator this weekend to see if his injured wrists are okay because he's obviously had some some work done. Um, it sounds like he's been to see a um, renowned MotoGP doctor um, who is very good at dealing with um, fractures and, and rapid recovery, shall we say. So I think it sounds like Stroll's doing everything he can to get back. I think it's potentially a good sign about how much he actually wants to get back rather than there's always this little thing with Lance, isn't there? But how much does he actually want it? Is he doing this because it's a bit of a thing he's not, you know, forced into, but how, how dedicated really is he compared to an Alonso type, for example, but it does sound like he is working hard to get back. So the team's leaving it all, all keeping all options open. They've, they gave Felipe Djokovic a half day again. So he's sort of got a day's experience but Stoppel Van Dorn, the other reserve drivers around next weekend. There's been some rumours about Sebastian Vettel potentially expressing an interest in it or the team expressing an interest in getting him in. Hard to tell which, if either of those is, is the real thing. Um, and Aston just being weirdly cagey about it, like to the point of not even explicitly ruling Vettel out, which just feels like a really weird th- position to have to not rule him out when you've got two reserve drivers on your books and one of them has been in the car half a day over the last three days. Half a day in two of the last three days, I should say. It would surprise me if Vettel were to come back, but I've been surprised before. But he has retired. I'm sure he's kept himself in good nick, but he's not been training to be an F1 driver for the past few months. He won't have driven the car. He's just I, I just can't see that, that sort of thing happening. But you never know, stranger things have happened. And who given the chance to notch up that 300th Grand Prix start, which is a nice uh, rounding of the number. If but- it does happen, I'll be happy for Sebastian and it'll be nice to see him back in the paddock again. But I will be back on this podcast at some point having some pretty choice things to say about Aston Martin and what the hell they have two reserve drivers for if they're just going to pull that kind of stunt. I think at this stage, the logical choice is Filippo Djurovic. He's logged a day in the car. He's driven the Bahrain track. He's done several days in the simulator. He's, he's the trained for this. Person. He's contracted for this. A Formula Two champion. He's there. He's the basically the the beacon of their new dr- young driver program. It's a it's it's a it spits in the face of what they're trying to do there across the board. But I'm getting ahead of myself because maybe this isn't even going to happen. Yeah, I think you would if Van Dorn had been available for the test. I think you'd have put him in as the experienced hand to be the, the reserve, that would have made sense, but he wasn't. And what I definitely wouldn't do is run Drogovic here and then put Van Dorn in for the race weekend. I think your optimum choice is Drogovic at, the, at this stage from that perspective. And it would be very interesting to see him get a chance. He's not F2 champion for no reason. Well, let's quickly hear from Gary Anderson, who's been doing a different kind of time adjustment. He will explain all and run through what he thinks of the top four teams. Well, the pre-season testing's finally finished and um, now we can look forward to the first Grand Prix weekend in Bahrain in, in, well, it's under seven days' time, to be honest. It's been a relatively mixed three days, 
the, the overall gap from front to back will have got a little bit smaller as, a, as the second season has come around. But all we can as, assess it on is the three days testing we've seen. The big things I would say here is that we've any time, any, any weather condition during those three days, the Red Bull seems to be able to, you know, the, the drivers seem to be able to put a lap in, especially for Stappen. I mean, we obviously know he's very good at just hanging out there immediately. We, we always see at Grand Prix that, you know, his first lap is, you know, right up there. But, you know, the, the car does look decent. I wouldn't say I see any real vices within the, the Red Bull. Um, but again, for me, the confirmation is the fact you can... Every time you get in it, they can go quick. Ferrari is not not much different. Um, it doesn't look as good by any means. It's a little bit more bouncy. It's um, just you know just not as quite as tidy. The Red Bull, you would look at it and say as a package, it's just it's just there. Again, difficult to know with those two. I think they are going to lead head the field, um, and maybe by a bit more of a margin than what uh, than what Red Bull had last year as far as performance is concerned. It's one of these sort of situations we'll never know until we know how they can turn the engine up or how they run qualifying, so that's a week away. But um, the general trend that I'm seeing is Red Bull at the top of the, the, top of the table, followed um, a little bit further away than last year by Ferrari. And then really surprise, but no surprise, because they have blatantly uh, taken directives from the Red Bull is the Aston Martin, um, and obviously they've got Alonso in the car as well. Not saying there's anything wrong with Vettel, to be, uh, any means, but you know Alonso is this. Uh, you know he's an animal. Um, he wants to win. He knows his days of that happening are getting less as he's getting older, but he still has that hunger within himself. So probably at this time of Aston Martin's uh, time in Formula One. And Alonso's time in Formula 1, they couldn't have been a better match because Alonso's going to give it everything he can give it. And I know that Lance Stroll um, and his father Lawrence will give the company everything they can to actually supply him with that. But I think they will have some success this year. Not saying they're going to win races, but they will be um, in there in contention. Um, and with a, bit, a little bit of luck, yeah, they could win a race. And then, if that's the top three... Where's Mercedes? Well, I think they're next. I'm pretty sure that you know the final day of testing on Saturday. You know, Lewis was hanging out when he was on the softer tires. He wasn't playing around, so he was given everything. And um, in my book, we've ended up just over one percent slower than than Red Bull around uh, around Bahrain. Now, it's it's not represented for every track. But I think they still do have some problems. They still don't have the performance out of the car that they need to take the, the fight to the front. We all know that Mercedes, you know, they don't, they don't put all on the table. They'll, they'll hang a little bit back for, for the future for sure. But then so do all the big teams, you know. Red Bull and Ferrari, they, they've been around long enough not to go for glory runs. So um, I think Mercedes fit into that same bill. My percentage that I've taken here, you know, I've accounted for the tyre difference. I've I brought everybody back to the C3 tyre, which will be the, the softest tyre next weekend in Bahrain. And I've taken a little bit of a stab at fuel loads because, you know, we know the big teams don't really tamper too much with fuel loads. They know what they want to do. They know what they could do if the car was low on fuel. Um, and they're pretty confident in what they're doing. They would carry a, a decent fuel load. They wouldn't be by any any means, you know, full tanks or even half tanks when they're doing their their hanging out runs as such. But the smaller teams will go for a little bit more glory. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Right, we've done the top four teams, so let's get into the rest, Scott. We've placed Aston Martin as the lead midfielder, but all the other teams we're going to talk about now are kind of in their natural group from where things were before. So if you had to pick a second best midfielder or the the midfield team, if it's not Aston Martin that's most likely to be ahead, which one would you go for? Okay, so... I just can't shake the feeling that Alpine has held back a huge amount. And while the car never looked stunning trackside, and it looks quite stiff, like it was being unsettled into turns 9 and 10 in a way that I didn't really see any other car reacting to the bumps. But if I if I consider if I consider what I saw there, with what we heard from the team about them being quietly confident and clearly not giving anything away, with the fact that the lap times show that they were nowhere near a performance run, with the fact that the amount of long running they did shows that they must have had a certain amount of fuel in the car. I think they were running quite heavy a lot of the time. And I'm also 99% sure they've been running with the engine turned down the vast majority of the time because when we spoke to technical director Matt Harmon... He said that they know that they've got a certain amount of performance in reserve. And the only way you can know that is if it's something like engine mode. Because fuel loads, yeah, you can have a rough idea of how much time that's worth. But because it changes your your balance so much, it, it you need to know for certain. You, you, you can only have a certain amount of sort of hypothetical lap time on the board. Because it, it, there's no guarantee that you can actually do that in reality. Whereas if you've turned the engine down, you've actually got a bit more of a fixed parameter for what that's worth because you know that X amount of power down a straight that's this long will result in a pretty well-defined amount of lap time. So that's just much easier to quantify. So with all of those things factored in, 
I'm pretty sure that the Ast- uh, the Alpine's got a lot in reserve. And it wouldn't surprise me if that jumps to be in the sort of fourth or fifth quickest team. But a lot of that is based around stuff that I didn't see on track. It 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 does that does depend on a lot of those circumstances mitigating the fact that the car looked good, but nothing more than good. It was, of course, the slowest car on single lap pace, the ninth most number of laps. The only team not to go quicker than it did in Bahrain testing last year. So on paper, everything looks terrible for Alpine. But yeah, they are very happy with that long run pace, or at least pretty happy with it. It doesn't look like Aston Martin beating at this stage, but it means they're in a, in a pretty good place. And there is an upgrade planned for the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend. The midfield team that, that caught my eye actually was one I didn't have massively high hopes for. Williams? <laughs> no, no, Alfa Romeo. Now, this car is... It just looks like a, a nice car, which sounds rather fatuous. But what I mean is it looks consistent. The drivers can attack in it. It's got a, a better balance across a range of uh, a wider range of, uh, of corner profiles. This year, obviously, they had the rear instability and the quicker stuff. It's improved. Bottas said it's kind of 50% better on that score now. So that's very positive. He said there's no big limitations. They were getting the mileage. They did have a Ferrari power unit related problem today that caused a stoppage on track, but they've racked up the laps. The car's long run pace is pretty good. Obviously, they had, I think, the third fastest time of the test. I'm going to get too excited about that, but it's not a slow car. So I'm not tipping them to lead the midfield or anything, but I think we're at a point where a well-driven Alfa Romeo on a good qualifying day it's getting into Q3 is a, Q, is a Q3 car and I probably before things got going this season I'd have said it's just going to be a Q2 car and you'd need a, f- a very fair win to get into Q3 so I think that's pretty good and at least it means we don't have to trouble Valtteri Bottas sympathy corner right now until we get to Bahrain next weekend and they're 10 fastest <laughs> yeah um no I would agree I I feel I think the Alfa Romeo is one of three cars that fit into a specific bracket, which is that they had nothing like obviously wrong with them. And I would say that was the Alfa Romeo, the Alfa Tauri, and the Haas. But they were very different. They were in different parts of that bracket. I think the Alfa Romeo was definitely at the upper end of it. It was just. It just looks solid all through. I think it, it. I do think it needed the soft tires to really impress me, but it still looked absolutely fine whenever it came through on sort of you know a medium compound, for example. Um, I felt the Hass was incredibly middle of the road, nothing stunning about it, but equally no major vices. So it's almost like the next step down from the Alfa Romeo in terms of the impact that it has on you when you watch it trackside. And then the Alfa Tauri is in the sort of like lower part of that bracket because there are moments where it's a little bit concerning to watch, but never like the Alfa, it's never an ATO, four, uh, it's never an ATO four that comes piling in, snatches a brake, locks up and runs wide. It never has anything like that, but it has moments where it looks like it needs to take a corner in in stages because it's a bit disjointed um, and equally comes through other times and you just think, oh, that just looks really quite nice. It's it, that, those three kinds of cars that were a little bit benign a lot of the time and then where where I rank them basically comes down to how often did they actually impress me 
more than I just sort of thought, oh, there's an F1 car going past me. And the Alfa Romeo is definitely top of that group. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. The Alfa Tauri does have a little bit of understeer in it. The Haas very occasionally showed a bit of that, but the drivers seem to be able to attack reasonably well into the corners. The Alfa Romeo was just the most metronomic of those from what I saw. Valtteri Bottas said he just had one tiny lockup. So he, he seemed genuinely very, very happy, Valtteri Bottas, about the progress. So I think they are pretty encouraged at Alfa Romeo, which is good because obviously they had the poor end to last season, although there was that little mini revival at the end. It didn't quite get the results it should have done, but they had the front wing upgrade and the floor upgrade and they, they got back into Q3, but the execution wasn't great. Reliability was, was good for that car during testing as well. So... Yeah, that's an interesting little group. So you've got you've kind of got that that group of three: Alfa Romeo, Alfa Tauri, Haas, Alpine, kind of ahead, and then Aston Martin potentially trying to bridge across to the to the top three. So there's two teams left: Williams and McLaren. So are they going to be in the the battle for the wooden spoon? Are they going to be the ones who are getting into Q two on a on a mega day at the start of the season? Honestly, I'd be I would be surprised if McLaren's not beating Williams, and I still think that if McLaren tidy up that car, I think there is a bit of low hanging fruit with the Alpha Tauri, and then to get into that sort of secondary midfield pack in a little bit more of a competitive way. So this isn't to say that we think McLaren are an absolute write off, but just visually on track, it's definitely one of the the, the worst two cars in terms of it being unimpressive to watch and actually concerning to watch, to be honest, like just a bit, a bit all over the place. Um, just seem to be catching out the drivers quite a lot. It just un- looks ungainly that it's, it's really hard to describe it, but it looks like all the, the little, little issues they had with last year's car, and if anything, it looks a bit worse. Then it doesn't look like it's better. Yeah, I think everything we talked about in yesterday's podcast stands to an extent. They did make some progress today, but uh, not not ideal. But Lando Norris was talking about it. And he said it was quite similar to last year. And I did ask him in the press conference about it because and Lando Norris knows why I'm asking this because I've been talking. I've been asking him about <laughs> the handling characteristics of the McLaren. For he several knows years. you. <laughs> I'm always asking him this sort of thing. So I I did ask him well. This car, you've had a series of McLarens that have had some peculiar handling traits. You talked about last year being on this knife edge. So is it all the same? And he sort of with a bit of a smile, he said all the sort of right things, but he did say, yes, it's similar to last year. And you know what that means, basically. We're going to hope that things are going to get better with the upgrades, which to me means, yeah, this car is still very, very, very tricky. And actually, I think Lando Norris is their trump card in this situation. He dealt with it brilliantly last year. And actually, I do think, I'll say, I think Lando Norris will probably be in Q2 in Bahrain. Yeah, yeah. I think the car is, wherever it is in that midfield group is marginal enough for him to to make the difference. I mean, Oscar Piastri, the car bit him really badly in the morning and a very dramatic spin, which is quite an aggressive manifestation of that weakness we were talking about. The other part of McLaren that I got a really nasty sense of deja vu about was the amount of track time it lost due to a, what seemed like a pretty silly reliability problem where they just keep having to reinforce the um, not wheel covers, the wheel brows, because you love calling the wheel covers as we were discussing at the I think track. Maybe the other way around. Mm, 
I may have repeatedly well, referred you suggest, to them. You suggested calling them wheel covers and say you can't call them wheel covers because the wheel covers are the, the covers on the wheel hub. And to which you said, can we call it a wheel cover? And it's like, well, yeah. it's just going round it's and round, br- much not, like a wheel cover. Yeah, it's not the brightest thing I've said during testing this week. <laughs> testing although, does take it although out. Although there may be people listening to the podcast would disagree. But but yeah, it just means that, that McLaren just feels feels underprepared because of the mileage. It wasn't the first day either that they that they lost a little bit of track time they had they did less they did they did less running than any other team and it looks like they have one of the worst cars it's a pretty daunting situation it's it's better than last year but not by a huge amount and they set the bar very low last year in testing well, look, looking at the running it was Alpha Tari in the end that did the most 456 laps over the 3 days McLaren managed 312 laps and Alpine was next worst at 353 so mclaren was quite a big step it means that mclaren's a full day's running behind the busiest team in a a time where testing is at its lowest it's really bad yeah i think we are now with mclaren in in a proper right the first few races uh any any point you can get is a bonus and it's just learn what you can do what you can and just hope that that upgrade works so well it's it's strange because if you look at where they were last year they they went in to the first race off the back of a disastrous test. They went in in worse shape than they are now, just purely because of the extent of the reliability problems last year with the brake cooling. But then they were able to pick up really quickly and the first three or four races ended up being quite an aggressive slope in terms of how much it picked up and the performance that they gained. But actually, I think even though testing is not as much of a disaster as it was 12 months ago, I have lower expectations for their first few races this year than last year. Yeah, I don't think we'll see quite that turnaround because there was a specific reason. Obviously, they struggled. Norris isn't getting a podium at Imola. No, no, no. no. It's amazing, wasn't it? Because they struggled in Bahrain, points in uh, Saudi Arabia, fifth and sixth in Australia, podium at Imola. So just they recovered quite, quite quickly and got back into that fight for fourth they didn't win it in the end but they were in it so yeah what's clear here is all of their messaging is right well it's going to be around race four we'll have the upgrade quite a big change all the stuff we talked about yesterday so yeah slow start for them and and Williams as we've said all along it's not that we think Williams are bad The, the car looks fairly honest and true it doesn't look too sensitive to the wind conditions, which has been a bit of a weakness in the past. So I think actually Williams have an okay platform. I mean, testing last year, they were off the back. This year, they're very much at the back, but not off the back. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think that it's clear that the key weaknesses of last year's car have been improved upon. Um, the, the exposure last year was that it just doesn't have good through corner balance. It's not very good with the dynamic situation of trying to break and turn at the same time or turn and break at the same time rather. And this year it still doesn't look perfect like that. I think even by the time Alex Albon was driving it and trying to get the most out of it at the end of the the final day, it still looked the most hesitant of the cars. And then there was a little indications of it breaking a little bit under traction as well. But it's not as messy as it looked last year. Obviously, they made quite a lot of progress through the course of the of the season. So I think they're starting in okay shape. It's just, it's ultra competitive. They're also realistic. And as long as they're in sort of contention in that sort of lower midfield group, I think, I think that's a relatively decent place for them to be in. 
Well, now we've run down the rest of the teams, let's have a listen to see what Gary Anderson made of them. Alfa Romeo, they're doing okay. They started last season quite well. They dropped away quite a lot. So they need to not let that happen this year because you know it's, it's very important just to keep the momentum going. Um, their car probably looks, well, let's say the worst, the worst as far as Porpoison is concerned. But that's not a bad thing. Um, as long as they can just keep it under control, uh, not that it get get you know too dramatic, then they've they've got themselves in a position where they've got the car working to its maximum potential without tripping over and, and going overboard. Following Alfa Romeo, I've got Haas. Structurally, the team is set up better. The big thing they've got to do is make sure they carry the development through the season because they started last year very competitively, and then again, like um, like Alfa Romeo dropped away. You can't afford that to happen at all. Um, behind Haas, I've got Alpine. I think their car looked quite neat and tidy. Um, it had good logical reasons for everything. But on the track, it looks like it's running, you know, it has no springs on it, basically. Especially in the rear. Now, I know they've, they're quite proud of their uh, revised rear suspension. Um, Pushrod operated, but um, didn't look like it was working as well as it should do on the track. I, I've got a funny feeling in the water they're trying to do something with the rear suspension to allow the car to um, maintain a much more constant ride height. But in doing that, the car it's it's affecting the car quite dramatically. And they they were the one that's the way they were the team that's got the the uh, porpoise and a bit like um, Alfa Romeo, but also bouncing because it's hitting the ground quite hard. Maybe a little bit of work to do there, but it's one of those sort of things. You know, it could just be a little bit of an adjustment here and there to, to sort it out. They seemed quite confident, but I didn't see it in the car. Um, then we got the team that really had the most troubled test, I suppose. Um, McLaren, uh, you know, they were fighting the car a bit over the test, probably more than anybody else in the in the pit lane. And, and that shouldn't be for McLaren. You know, they're a, no matter whether the wind tunnel's the latest created gizmo or the... Um, you know, their simulations, good or bad or whatever, that should not mean this car is sitting in the garage being fixed more than any other team in the pit lane. Um, none of that matters when it comes to just running the car. So they should be able to come professionally to a circuit and run a three-day test. They go out of the pit lane when the green light comes on and they come back in when the checkered flag's waved. And that didn't happen. And that's the biggest deficit, really. It's not necessarily just the out-and-out performance of the car. It's not as good as it should be either, but as a team, they should be more professional than sitting around the front uprights of the car with uh, heat guns trying to um, get the glues to go off on, on the, uh, the sort of mudguard areas of the front suspension. That, that's you know, pretty primitive. That's 20 years ago, um, but it's not 2023 technology. So that's the area I would be pushing. You know, Forget the fact the car is not as quick as it should be, the fact that it should be running on the track, so it would allow them to discover the problems and the reasons that it's not as quick as it should be. Williams, I think they've made a step forward. Maybe not as big as it looks in face value, um, and, and it does look a bit of a fight. I think the car is still affected quite dramatically by the wind, and in Bahrain you do get sort of wind change quite a lot. But it needs to go to a race weekend and see where they are, you know. And then, you know, the one team I haven't mentioned so far is Alfa Tori. Um, it hasn't been a spectacular test for them. They've not really been there that much, you know. They do have to keep the momentum up and try and do the best job they can. But um, Whereas last year we were seeing from the front of the grid to the back of the grid something in the region of 
you know, 3%. Um, I think this year we'll be looking at something in the region of 2.5%. So I think that whole lot's closed up a little bit. Well, that about wraps it up for our look at pre-season testing. Thanks very much to Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson for their contributions and also to Scott Mitchell-Malm. And thanks to everyone for listening to us. It's uh, well after 1am here and we've still got a bit of stuff to write, so we're going to have to uh, put this one to bed now. So do head to therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there. Listen to our other podcasts, Bring Back V10s, our Formula E podcast, all available for free. And of course, check out our YouTube channel, well, pre-season testing is over, but the start of the season is just round the corner. So stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.